All right, how are we doing today? All right, good to see everybody here. Uh, good to have people here via Zoom again, and welcome. Uh, thank you, Randy. Uh, thank you, Jesse. Great to have music again. Uh, I'm a little rusty at this, uh, kind of hypocritical to be up here teaching on courage when uh, we started using slides again, and that scares the heck out of me because <laughs> for anybody that remembers many, many years ago, if anybody was with us from the start, uh, the first role I played here at uh, church was projector man, <laughs> and we had a demon-possessed slide projector. <laughs> You'd hit the button to go forward one, and it would just take off, you know, and go into, like, Texas, and you couldn't bring it back, and, you know, there were times when you'd just throw your hands up, stand up, and wave to everybody. So, so but uh, supposedly we got all the bugs worked out now, so uh, hopefully this will work. But we're continuing in a great series that Mike started last week on the long form of the serenity prayer. Uh, this is such a, uh, what would be the word, such a uh, topical thing for us to do at this point in, in time, because uh, if there's one thing that I know I could use more of these days, it's serenity. Uh, we not only live in a fallen world, we live in a crazy world. But one of the foundational teachings of our church from the start is that we live in a fallen world. I love that teaching because it helps me to understand why things are the way they are. Uh, we live in a fallen world. Uh, how often have perhaps some of us said things like this, maybe in uh, watching the news perhaps, uh, this is not right. Why does it have to be this way? How did it get to this point? Uh, my personal favorite, somebody needs to do something about this. <laughs> and those are thoughts that I have all the time. And a lot of times people will look at the state of the world and say, where is God in all this? Either why didn't he prevent this to begin with, or at least why doesn't he fix it? That got brought up years ago in a meeting I was at where somebody said, where was God? And a person across the table said, where was man? He says, we have tremendous resources available to us. We just channel them into the wrong things. It's not a lack of resources, but a lot of times we would just expect God to fix some of this. But you see, God works through people, and we are those people. So a lot of times what God wants, I don't think, is just to fix it. And we're going to get into that a little more as we go along here. But part of this is that it's okay to be angry. One of the favorite sermons that I heard was from a teacher named Malcolm Smith, and he did a series called Anger and the Spirit's Control. And what he pointed out is, if you can watch the news or look at current events and not get angry, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you may be sociopathic. <laughs> because does God get angry? Of course he does. Is it a sin to be angry? No. The Bible doesn't say don't get mad. What it says is, um, be angry, but sin ye not. 
It also says don't let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't say don't get mad. You see, anger, there is such a thing, according to the Bible, as righteous anger. There's also such a thing uh, in one of the verses I printed here with Noah, who had holy fear. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Holy fear. But these things that we experience, call them emotions or whatever, it's energy. It's a driving force. The problem with both anger and fear is often it opens up a channel for temptation or deception where we experience these things and then we use it to go in the wrong direction. That's the problem with things like anger and fear. When we get into teaching, one of the tactics or techniques that teachers use is it often helps to teach or help people to think in terms of opposites. For instance, if you want to teach about capitalism, one of the easiest ways of doing it is to compare and contrast it with communism. If you want to teach certain ideas or certain concepts, it's really advantageous to look at its opposite. But not everything has an opposite, and often we get confused about what the opposite really is. For instance, uh, if you're teaching about uh, love, we, it would be easy to say, well, the opposite of love is hate, right? Not really. The opposite of hate turns out to be indifference. You see, like when couples fight and eventually break up, counselors will tell you that the marriage isn't over when the fighting is going on. It's over when the fighting ends. <laughs> and there's nothing left to scream about. Then it's done. It's, you don't even care anymore. Indifference is the opposite of love. There's other things like you would think that, light, that dark is the opposite of light. But it turns out light has no opposite. Darkness is not the opposite of light, but rather the absence of light. God has no opposite. The devil isn't the opposite of God. It's not yin-yang. It's, um, the devil is just a created being. You know, it, he's not God's equal. And similarly, it would be easy to think that the opposite of courage is fear. But if that were true, then you would define courage as the absence of fear. Now, I've known people who manifested tremendous courage. And to the untrained observer, it looked like they could act the way they did because they weren't afraid. But I know we've got some people in here. For instance, we have some people that have served in our military. And if you said, well, obviously you were enabled to do what you did in the service because you weren't afraid, they'd just laugh at your, in your face. Of course they've experienced fear. But courage is actually defined as the ability to act in spite of fear. It's not the absence of it. And you see, so... The opposite of courage is not fear. And I would then say that fear is not the opposite of courage, but rather the opposition to courage. One of my spiritual advisors years ago could 
pull a sermon out of anything. <laughs> he used to be fond of saying things like, uh, rightly divided and rightly understood, everything in this universe testifies of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> and he could, you know, just everything he looked at, he saw a sermon in it. But you see, I saw some great sermons in the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. <laughs> Does anybody remember the Roadrunner? Me, me. Zip, dang. Uh, love that show. And in that show, I really believe that Wiley Coyote was the devil. <laughs> because what did he do? He was always trying to snare the Roadrunner, trying to trick him, trying to trap him. But the Roadrunner represented us, people of faith, because he didn't fall for the devil's schemes. He was just a little smarter, a little wiser. And just like people in the military, they trusted their training. And you see what the Roadrunner did, like one of my favorites was Wiley Coyote would try to stop the Roadrunner on the middle of an open highway by putting up a canvas and painting a brick wall on it. And then the Roadrunner would come and just run right through it. And I love that. Why did the Roadrunner not stop? Well, I would maintain because he knew the roads. He knew there wasn't a brick wall there. He had faith that he could run through that canvas and it wouldn't stop him. And he was right. And you see, this is one of the lessons that we can learn about faith, is that there's some acronyms for fear, F-E-A-R. One of them is false evidence appearing real. Just like that canvas. If it stops us, it might as well be a brick wall. And we're not even going to try to go through it because we are afraid of what will happen. But a second acronym for fear, F-E-A-R, is face everything and recover. Because the third one is if you stop, then it's not only false evidence appearing real, but it's forget everything and run. We <laughs> just give up. But face everything and recover. We just need to plow through. And that's why we need to understand fear is simply an external force that's trying to rattle our cage, trying to lie to us and deceive us into giving up our power and our energy. So once we understand a little bit about fear and the role it plays, there's three main problems that I see with fear. It drains us of power, deceives us into bad decisions, and divides us from others. Michael, be proud. That all has alliteration. DDD, drains, deceives, divides. <laughs> I'm trying, Mike. <laughs> but uh, the first one is fear. The nature of fear is it drains us of power, doesn't it? Now, I can't speak for the ladies, but I know I can speak for all men here, right? Okay, yeah, go for it, Mark. Uh, <laughs> but I know as a man, I hate being scared. I hate being afraid. And the reason is because fear makes me feel weak, makes me feel puny. So what I tend to do is I will channel my fear into anger. I would rather be mad than scared. So I would rather, because when I feel anger, then the adrenaline starts pumping and I start feeling large and in charge. I can start throwing things or yelling like a little yippy dog. But, and 
I think, you know, it's going to scare my problems into going away. But I would rather be mad. I hate being scared. Always have. Because I hate feeling weak. And it's really hard to be honest sometimes, because it's easy to admit I'm mad. Oh, that really makes me angry. It's a lot harder to say that. That scares me. And it's even harder to get down to the root cause and say that hurts me. I really don't like admitting to be wound, being wounded either. So fear drains us of our power. The second problem with fear is it deceives us. See, one of the things I learned about the nature of fear is, and this really blew my mind, is that the nature of fear, when I think of fear, I think of it as a stack of dominoes. And the first dominoes to tip is that stuff happens, right? Bad things happen. And then my reaction is I get afraid. But often it's exactly the opposite. I get afraid and then stuff happens. You see, the nature of fear is oftentimes that when we get afraid, we make bad decisions that actually cause the very thing to happen that we're afraid of. Now, that might scare a person too. You might become superstitious and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. are you saying that if I worry about something, I'm going to just conjure it? <laughs> now I got to worry about that. It's okay because it's bad luck to be superstitious. <laughs> so it's not that we conjure it. It's that we create it through deception. Ironically, when we get afraid, we tend to make bad decisions that ironically move us closer to the very thing we're afraid of. Here's some simple examples. One of my favorite examples of how this first domino to tip is fear and then things happen is an example of something that happened down in Parker, South Dakota years ago. And I might get a few of the details wrong here. I'm a little fuzzy. But the news story was about, uh, I believe it was two brothers that lived down there. And they had a fear of losing money by putting it in banks. And it wasn't completely unrational because their parents lived through the Great Depression. And back then there was no FDIC, no insurance in banks. And if you put your money in a bank that failed, you just lost your money. That was true. So they were afraid of putting their money in a bank and losing it. So what they did was they put their money, they converted everything to cash and kept it in a safe in their living room. And they ended up through the years of being very successful in farming and they inherited things. So they ended up with over $100,000 in cash in their living room. Well, guess what happened next? Uh, some young thug, you know, in town found out these guys were sitting on all this cash. So one night they drove out to their farm, killed them both and stole their money. You see, that fear caused them to not only lose their money anyway, but also lose their life. Here's another example. For a while, I worked as a supervisor and then as a manager in a company. And during that time, I had to fire some people who were paranoid. And you see, I didn't get rid of them because of their, they had fear. It was because of the decisions they made based on that fear. They were afraid of being fired. Now, all they had to do was just show up and do their job. But instead, because of that fear of being fired, 
they made a lot of bad decisions where they would show up and spend 10 hours a day just playing office politics and trying to get other people fired and trying to make them look good and them look bad, and it was all games. And finally, we had to get rid of them because they wouldn't just do their job. That fear of getting fired caused them to get fired. Here's another example. People that are afraid of losing a relationship with a loved one. Uh, If you're afraid of somebody leaving you, are you fun to be around? (laughs) I mean, eventually you start stalking people. You start asking them a hundred times a day, where were you? Who were you with? And eventually that fear, you lock them in the bedroom when you go to work. And that turns out to not be so cool. And (laughs) so that fear of losing a loved one ends up driving them away. But what was the first domino to tip? Fear. And then you cause the very thing that you're afraid of. Uh, People who are afraid of getting into a car accident. Those are the ones that cause accidents. They're the ones driving 40 miles an hour down the interstate and get rear-ended. If you worry too much about your health, you can literally worry yourself sick. If you worry about a lot of things, you know, then, so you see, this is the nature of fear. It opens the door for deceptions. The textbook example is people who are afraid of going to the dentist because it hurts to get drilled and filled. But you see, their fear of pain, if they're really afraid of pain, they should be going to the dentist, not running from him, because it hurts a lot more to have your teeth pulled than than filled. And that's another example of the nature of fear. The third problem with fear is it divides. When I get afraid, I diagnose my problem, and my problem isn't fear, it's you. It's them. It's that thing. And I direct all of my focus on the scary thing, and then I start looking at it sideways. So I start to look at other people sideways. I mean, I love President Kennedy. Was it? Kennedy or Roosevelt? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, Roosevelt, thank you. And, uh, but that's so true. See, I don't look at the fear. I look at the thing I think I should be afraid of. And I'm often wrong about that. And the worst thing I can do is let fear divide me from God. Because The way fear divides us from God, and I love this because Mike talked about a little of this last week, and a lot of this comes out of C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem with Pain. Great book, hard to read, kind of heady, but the point that C.S. Lewis made in The Problem of Pain is when we're hurt or when we're threatened, we start to look at God sideways, and we start to see him as the problem. And you see, no one who sees God as the problem can see him as the solution, can they? So C.S. Lewis maintained that at those times when we're in pain, it affects our beliefs, it affects our conception of God. And to flesh out what Mike was saying last week, like I usually have four different ways that we form an incorrect belief system, an incorrect conception of God. We tend to see he's either unaware, has nothing to share, he does not care, or he is not fair. Again, alliteration. (laughs) But 
The first one is we look at God, and in that case, we see God as kind of like this. He's just unaware. Do-do-do, you know. And in that case, we start to see God as either ignorant of our needs or he's just insensitive to them. Oh, yeah, you know. And we're down here praying and screaming, trying to get God's attention. Hey, I got some things going on. I need some help over here. And God's just, oh, oh, what? Oh, 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 look at the stars. And you see, if God is unaware, if he's not involved, if he's not connected to us, if he's not interacting with us, then he's not going to help us, is he? The second wrong conception of God we form is that God is very aware, but he has nothing to share. In that case, instead of God being aloof, God is connected. He sees us, but he's standing there with his pockets turned inside out, and he's going like this. He's going, dude, I see you hurting. I see that you have needs, but you know what? In this case, I'm not indifferent. I'm impotent. I got nothing for you. In fact, I was kind of hoping you'd go a little heavy on the collection plate. I could use a couple more bucks, but, you know, I just have nothing for you. And if God has nothing to share, if he can't help, if God doesn't have the power to help us, then he's less than God. The third wrong conception we get deceived into is God does not care. And instead of like this, he's like this. He's going, oh, I have tremendous resources, but I'm not going to share them with you. (laughs) You just need to work that out on your own. And, you know, just good luck with all that. I'm aware of your needs, and I could help. I just won't. I just, I don't care. And the final one is that God's not fair. So we look at God, and we want him to help us. But if our conception is, oh, and God has tremendous power, and he cares, and he helps everybody else, but not me. It's unjust. I do right things, and I seem to get punished, and these people do wrong things, and they seem to get rewarded. So who needs God? I mean, if this is our system, if it's not fair, and you see an unjust God is also less than God. So what's the solution? How can we avoid falling into these wrong traps? And I believe we find the solution for this in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught us how to pray. And the first two words of that prayer is what answered all of these wrong conceptions for me. Our Father. Our Father. And you see, that simple idea, two simple words, our Father, help me to understand why this world is the way it is, but more importantly, why God does the things he does and why God doesn't do the things that he doesn't do. Our Father. Any parents in here? Yeah, parents, you bet. Let me ask the parents a question. Is it your job as a parent to insulate your children from all pain? No, no. If that were your job as a parent, then parenting is easy. You tab babies and you lock them in the basement until they're 21. Yeah, job over. 
(laughs) They'll never get a skinned knee. They'll never get a broken heart. They'll never experience any negativity. But that's not parenting, is it? You see, the same loving parent that goes to the store to buy their kid their first bicycle stops in the other section and buys bandages. (laughs) Why? Because you want them to fall off their bike? Of course not. But you love your kids enough and you want them to develop in a healthy manner so you're willing to expose them to calculated risks in order to grow. So therefore, you allow your children to experience certain levels of pain. Another question for the parents, is it your job as a parent to provide everything that your kids want and need the second they need it or want it? No. What happens in that case? If you try that, your kids end up spoiled. And their expectations just go into the stratosphere. I know Gary's sitting in the back probably, so he wanted a motorhead example. So here's a motorhead example. You know, I'm a car guy, so. See, let's take an example. Let's say that a person lives in this neighborhood and he happens to live next to a mechanic. And this mechanic just loves wrenching on cars. He loves fixing things. So he parks his car in the driveway every night and unbeknownst to him, his neighbor comes over at night and services his vehicle for him. Now, this guy doesn't care a lick about cars or fixing them, so he never checks his oil, never changes his oil, never maintains anything, but his neighbor does. So while he's sleeping, his neighbor comes over and changes his oil, comes over every week and pulls the dipstick. Oh, you're a quart low, pours a quart in, comes over and puts air in the tires. And Oh, he needs a new timing belt. He puts that on. Well, so this guy, year after year, gets in his car and goes. Gets 300,000 miles on it. And he's going, you know, this is the best car that I have ever had. <laughs> It just runs and runs, and I've never had to open the hood. In fact, I don't even know how to open the hood, (laughs) but I've never needed to. (laughs) Is that a good car? No, that's, that's not a great car. That's a great neighbor. That's a great friend. But would the credit go to the neighbor for all that or to the car? You see, if God's job was just to come along and fix everything, especially fix things after we made some bad decisions, and we had no consequences, would we make different decisions next time? No, we'd just keep rolling and doing dumb things, and we'd just keep, and he'd just be not only mopping up behind us, but mopping up in front of us. And you see, would God get the credit for any of that? Of course not. We'd probably take it for to ourselves because I'm making bad decisions, but they always turn out okay. <laughs> and you see, that's not how God works. It's been said that lessons are what we get when we don't get what we want. <laughs> that's certainly true of kids. Everything is a teaching moment. And once I understood this concept of God as a father. God is somebody who wants to develop me. 
a lot of this serenity prayer made sense because often it's not things in this world that need to be changed so much as us that needs to be changed. You see, this world, God has a long-term solution for this world. But in the short term, we're the ones that need to change in order to develop more, in order to deal with some of this. And yes, there are things that need to be changed in the world, and thank God for people that change them. But it needs to start in here, not out here. See, I need to get right before I can go make other things right. Because in the world, might makes right. See, it's the strong that call the shots. Everything in God's world is opposite. In God's kingdom, right makes might. Our strength is contained in the fact that we live in the truth and the light, and we live in reality. So the final point here is grace, I've learned, is dispensed daily on an as-needed basis. The source of my fear, as it turns out, is that I know that tomorrow I'm going to face some things where I need this much grace. And right now I've got this much. But this is in the future. I don't need this much today because that's tomorrow. Today I've got this much. But this is all I need is this much today. When tomorrow comes, if I need this much, God will give me that much. That was the whole example of the manna in the desert. Give, and that's, again, going back to the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. See, I remember I had to have a knee worked on one time, and I limped around for a couple of years because I was afraid of the pain. I didn't want to get this fixed. And finally, it got so bad that I scheduled a deal, and I had to go in and have this worked on. Not a big deal, but... Uh, and I mean, I sweated this out for a couple of years. And finally, I woke up the day I needed that fixed, and I was perfectly calm. It was weird. I started to worry that I wasn't worried. <laughs> I thought something broke in here. <laughs> but that day, I had everything I needed. But you see, if I just think I need to have all these resources for tomorrow, it just doesn't work that way. But all I have to do is make it until midnight, one day at a time. I know I've got enough money in my pocket. I've got enough gas in my tank. I've got enough food in the refrigerator. I've got enough of everything I need to make it until midnight. Tomorrow is a different day. And if I can limit my scope to today, I know I can make it today. Tomorrow, I just have to make it that day. And the other angle to this is, it's very interesting because this serenity prayer, as some of us know, is used a lot, was used for years and still is by 12-step recovery organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon and others. And in the main textbook for Alcoholics Anonymous, there's 164 pages of instructions on how to recover from addictions in there. And there's a lot of prayers in that book. Mike often quotes the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, but there's a ton of prayers. If you list all of the prayers in that book, and there's a lot of them, what's really interesting to me 
is there's only four things that they pray for in 12-step recovery. Interesting. The first one is forgiveness. And that makes perfect sense because, again, no one who sees God as the problem can see him as a solution. Once punishment is taken off the table, then and only then can we truly approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. So forgiveness is critical. But beyond that, there's only three things that we ask God for, which is great because then it implies there's only three things I lack, only three things I need, knowledge, willingness, and power. In that order. Now, the way I think of this, it's like every day God gives you a package, kind of like Amazon. You open the door and there's a package there. Well, every day God gives you a package. And in that package are three things. Knowledge of his will for us, the power to carry it out, and a change of heart so we want to do what he wants us to do. Well, I open it up and I, the, on top of the, the first thing in there on top is knowledge. And my tendency as a human being is pull the knowledge out, look at it, and say, I don't want to do that. And even if I did, I don't have the strength to do it. So I'm going to go running screaming down the street going, no. (laughs) If I just would have kept digging in that same box, I would also find the second thing that I need to make that happen. Willingness. A change of heart. You see... The greatest spiritual truth I've ever learned is so simple but so profound. God will always change our behavior by changing our desire. Through a change of heart, we want to do different things. We want to become different people. And if we want to do these things God's way, that is what makes the impossible possible. But even if we wanted to do something different, we can't, because then we face that third hurdle, lack of power. The world is full of people that knew better, knowledge, but didn't do better, because sometimes they don't want to, and even if they want to, they try and fail. They don't have the power. And in the bottom of the box, we find the third thing we need, power to carry it out. Knowledge, willingness, power. And when we have those three things, what's left to stop us? See, God will truly give us everything we need to make this work. And that's, you know, once we learn how to pray effectively, not that there's a secret formula to prayer by any means, but the point of it is, when we start, see, I've been wrong all my life about two simple things my problems, and my solutions. (laughs) All my life, I wondered what my problem is, and I always thought it was you, it was them, it was this world, it was all kinds of things. Today I know my problems, what's wrong with me, my defects of character, my fear, my anger, my selfishness, my deception, my pride, my guilt, shame, and remorse. That's really my problem. They're a problem because I make bad decisions based on those things. And my solution is spiritual in nature because God will give me the knowledge of what I need to do differently, a change of heart where I want to do it, and most importantly, the power to carry that out. But don't take my word for it. Try it. Ask him and see what happens next. 
Shall we close in prayer? Lord, we just want to preemptively thank you for courage because I know you're going to be dishing out a bunch of it over the coming weeks and months and years because you are a good parent, a good father. You are the best imaginable parent ever, and you want every good thing for us as your children. And I know that you will provide for us what we need, not what we want, but what we need. And once we get what we need, you'll give us a change of heart, so we will find out that's what we really wanted all along. What we want is you. Thank you, Lord, for your for providing everything we need to make it work. And please change us so we can change the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.